I don't know if you guys uh, caught the Super Bowl last week. It seems like a long time ago because the Olympics already started, and uh, so that's not so much fresh in our minds. But the thing that I found fascinating about the Super Bowl was the uh, players that they interviewed, and many of them gave glory to God, but one in particular, the uh, MVP of the Super Bowl, Nick Foles, who was actually the second-string quarterback, and uh, Tony Dungy interviewed him before the game, and this commenter tweeted before the game that after interviewing Foles, he felt as though Nick Foles would play well because his Christian faith would allow him to play with confidence and really be a difference maker. Now, Dungy's a strong Christian, this commentator is, and he's a former coach, and, but he got some negative tweets back uh, reporting because he reported on Foles' faith, and they said, this is an NFL game. What are you talking about religion for? And Dungy responded, why would you find it hard to believe that the Holy Spirit could speak to Nick Foles just as much as a coach could speak to him? If he credited a coach for saying, stay calm, be confident, that's good. But if he tells me Christ says that to him, shouldn't I report that? And so it's interesting that Nick Foles was about to quit football when he was traded this year and went to the Philadelphia Eagles. And it doesn't matter what you know, fan you are right now. If you're happy about the Super Bowl or bad about it, I hope I didn't ruin your day by bringing this up. But uh, when, Carson, uh, uh, you know, when uh, Carson Wentz was hurt, Foles was ready because God had given him confidence to say, you can do this, Nick. Now, it's interesting that Nick Foles almost quit football that year before that, before he was traded. And he got traded to the Kansas City Chiefs, and then he got traded again to the Philadelphia Eagles, which used to be his team, and he figured, I'm not going to play at all because Carson Wentz is so good. He was the best quarterback in the NFL. But then his time came, and he was able to play football. You know what's interesting about Nick Foles? You know what he wants to do after he finishes football? He wants to become a youth pastor. He wants to become like Pastor Peter. He wants to invest in young people's lives. That's his greatest goal. So he signed up for seminary in the offseason. And he did that last year. The other amazing thing is that so many people on the Philadelphia Eagles came to faith in Christ this past year. They had baptisms before games on Sunday morning. That's amazing to see that. So the Spirit of God is working. It doesn't matter whether you're a ball boy, a pro football player, a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor. God is working around you. There's an activity of God around you. And when you recognize that and when you join Him in relationship to Him, when you join Him, He'll reveal His purposes and plans. But I want to tell you something. In order for that even to begin to happen... You have to have a God-centered life. That means the focus of your life has to be your relationship with Jesus Christ. If it's something other than that, you're going to miss it. Because oftentimes you could either be God-centered or you could be self-centered. And um, I've got a few pictures here. I forgot to show them to you. I had a picture of uh, Nick Foles up here. That's him winning his trophy. But here's a God-centered life. And if you want to take notes, you can. But a God-centered life, there's a confidence in God. So you know if you have a God-centered life, there's a confidence that you have that God is with you and he is working in your life. 
versus a confidence in self. And we put a lot of, a lot of stock in ourself. They say, people just say, just believe in yourself. But a God-centered life is believing and depend upon, depending on God. It's not self-sufficient. It's a life focused on God and his activity uh, and his goals. And so life focused, instead of a life focused on my own goals. And then it's a denial of self. So there's this sense of, I'm going to lay down my life, my goals, my wishes, so that I could follow after what God wants. And that's a key part of that, instead of a self-absorbed living. And then there's this holiness and godly li living and a wisdom versus the world's way, the world's way of living. And then it's seeking God's will and his kingdom first. And that should be over a little bit more, building your own, uh, building your own kingdom your own way versus building your own kingdom your own way. So there's this contrast of a self-centered life and a God-centered life. And to be honest with you, I fluctuate between both of those. Do you ever do that? You know, sometimes I'm God-centered. And when I'm God-centered, I have this confidence that God is going to work. I have a sense that it doesn't matter. I could sacrifice because I know that God's in it. But then when I get self-centered... I start to rely upon myself and my own resources. And a lot of times I get full of anxiety. You know, we could look at different people in the Bible who are self-centered and who are God-centered. There's Joseph who's thrown in prison for, uh, for not sleeping with his boss's wife. And then even when he's thrown in prison, it doesn't matter. He still works as hard as he can in prison. And the Bible says the Lord was with him there. And we know what happened to Joseph later on in life. He was elevated to be the second in command in Egypt. Then you've got Joshua and Caleb, who are two spies out of, ten, out of 12. They go and view the promised land. These two guys bring back a good report. The other 10 spies say, there's no way we could conquer them. Jo uh, Joshua and Caleb were God-centered people. They had a confidence in God. They had a dependence on God. They had a sense that God was going to work, and the other ten spies didn't. And so you see that over and over again. But one of the people that I think most epitomizes this is Moses. And when you look at the life of Moses, there's something about the life of Moses that really gives us principles of how to follow God and how to have a God-centered life. And when we don't, what happens? And so in the, in the story of Moses, we know that he is born... Uh, as a slave, but his parents send him, and the Pharaoh's daughter takes him and raises him in the palace. But he's living this double life. He's a Jew, but everybody thinks he's the daughter of Pharaoh, and so nobody really knows where he belongs, and yet he's beginning to build up this anxiety in his life that he sees the injustice of what's happening around him to his family and to his relatives and to the people of his people, the slaves in Egypt. And so one day Moses, after he had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them in their hard labor and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that way and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And so Moses take thing, you know, he sees this injustice happening and so what he does, he takes things in his own hands and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand, probably not too well of a job. Because the next day, 
he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one, is, one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I must have done has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. And the story goes that Moses flees from Egypt, ends up in Midian, becomes a shepherd. And for the next 40 years, not four years, for the next 40 years, Moses is there. He gets married, he has a family, and he becomes a shepherd. And so this idea of Moses taking things into his own hands and trying to do things his way, I believe shows Moses' self-centered life. Although he had good causes, and he had a cause to live for, he was trying to change an injustice, but he was trying to change it his way. And I think a lot of people get caught up in this. They see the injustice in the world say, I'll fix that. And they do it in their own strength, in their own way, and they end up being disappointed, sorely disappointed. Because God is the one that can fix things. God is the one that can redeem things. We can't do it. And so Moses had to learn that lesson. I believe God was working in Moses in a way to say, Moses, and I think he put him in that desert for a while to prepare him for what he was going to do later on. Because God was interested in a relationship with Moses rather than him going around fixing things. Now, God would use him in a powerful way to fix the situation. But the first thing that had to happen was Moses needed to have a relationship with God and it needed to be God-centered. So what was God doing during this time, during these 40 years? During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, and God heard their groanings, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You see, God was the one that was initiating the work of deliverance in the people of of God. And in the people that Moses was concerned about, God was still working. But Moses probably did not recognize it because he was so self-centered. And that can happen to us too. We can be overwhelmed by the circumstances or the things or the concerns that we have for other people or the situation that we're in, and we're blinded to it so much that we forget about that God's the one that's in control. And instead of crying out to God, we try to figure it out ourselves. And it ends up <laughs> that we probably aren't too pleased with what happens. You see, Moses kind of changed in that desert. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so Moses' heart begins to change. And he says, you know, I'm going to stay here in Midian. I'm not going back to Pharaoh. Maybe he could have had an opportunity after the Pharaoh died that was after him. Maybe he could have gone back there, but he said, no, I'm going to stay, and I will be, uh, you know, committed to whatever God wants me to do. But you see, there was still more that God wanted of Moses' life. And it's the same thing with you and I. 
He wants more than us just to follow the rules. He wants us to have a relationship with Him. And when we have a relationship with Him, when we know God and God knows us, and we are open to anything that God says in our lives, then things begin to happen in our relationship with God. That's what He's really after. He's really after a relationship with you. He's more, he's, he desires more to have a relationship with you than he does for you to get things done. And that frustrates us at times because we like to get things done. We like to fix things. We like things to move along. And God is saying, uh-uh. It's got to be me first. I've got to be your first love. It's got to be me and you first in this relationship. And then you'll be able to have a relationship with other people that is based on my love and my purposes. So if you read the story of Moses in Exodus, Exodus 3 and 4 talks about this invitation that God gives him. So as, as Moses is in the desert, he has this, uh, this meeting with God. He sees a bush burning, but the bush, bush isn't burned up. And God's presence is there all around. And then he comes up to the bush and then he has this conversation with God. And some of the things I find uh, interesting is that Moses makes one excuse after another about why he can't join God in what he's doing. Sound familiar? Don't we do that sometimes? Don't we do that sometimes? We see this invitation, we recognize an invitation that God would want us to be involved in some sort of <coughs> volunteer work or some sort of way that we could help somebody else or talk to somebody about the gospel. And then we immediately look at ourselves because we're self-centered and we say, no, that can't be, that can't be God. Because look at me, I, I just can't do something like that. And so we make an excuse. And this is what Moses said to God. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In Exodus 3, 11, 12, and God said, I'll be with you. You know, a lot of times that's the answer. I will be with you. When God says, I'm with you, and we just sang so many songs that talked about God's love and him being with us, that's what we have to hold on to. But then Moses again God says, you know, Moses, I want to use you. And God says, I want you to speak to the people. And Moses answered, and I want you to speak to Pharaoh too. And Moses said, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe the two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And so... God gave him and equipped him with signs, with things that he was, God was going to do through Moses' life to show that God had really sent him. Now, God packs all this stuff up, and still, if you read the story in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses still is dragging his feet. He's just saying, it can't be me. It's got to be somebody else. And my brother Aaron. Get Aaron to do it. If Aaron speaks, I'll stand alongside him. And so God continues to pursue Moses to convince him that he is the person that God wants to use. And you know, God does the same thing with you and I. 
He promises to be, Mo be with Moses. He promises to speak through him. He promises him that he'll deliver the people, but he will do it as Moses listens and does things his way. Not Moses' way. God's way. And that's a key point. When you're wanting to know and discover God's will in your life, one of the things is that God wants you to lay everything on the table before him. He wants you to lay your cards face up, no, nothing hidden, no Texas Hold'em. You know, everything's got to be face down, face up before him. And he wants you to uh, just lay it all before him and say, God, this is me, honestly. You know what I like about Moses? At least he's honest. When he's having this conversation with God, he doesn't say, oh, God, I'll think about it. Does anybody ever get, you know, get a text? Uh, hey, are you coming? Uh, I might be there. <laughs> I get that all the time. I might be there. That means no, I'm not coming. I, I found that out. You know, God knows our hearts, right? So you can't do that with the Lord. You say, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that later on in life. You know, maybe I'll answer that call that you, you know, God knows our hearts. You know, he wants us to respond to him. And when we respond to him, we get to know him better. And then he does some work in our lives and he changes us. He changes us to give us the confidence that we need. That's what a God-centered life has, is confidence in God's ability. You know, these past few years, or several years, I've been trying to find my confidence in the Lord. And some of the verses that I love are from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 1, 6. Be confident of this, that if God began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. He's still at work. He hasn't given up on you. And then this is our golden verse, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You see, confidence in God, that's probably what Nick Foles had. He had confidence in God, and that's why he didn't quit. That's why he could have, he could have went his own way and said, okay, um, maybe I will be a youth pastor. There's nothing wrong with being a youth pastor. But God didn't say he was released from his assignment that he had right there. Moses wasn't released for 40 years as being a shepherd learning to be a father, learning to be a husband. Those were all lessons that God was at work in his life to build into him the character that he needed for God's next assignment. And it's the same way for you and I. Don't say, hey, when I get older, I'm going to really follow God. You know, like when I, when I, you know, when I'm 55 and retired, I'll have all the time in the world to follow God. No, it starts now. It starts right where you are. Because following God is not something that you have to quit your occupation or stop studying as a student. God wants to use you right in your place, right where you are today, right with your sphere of influence that you have in your life today, right in your own family today. God is going to use you or wants to use you as you invite him and as he invites you into the work that he wants to do. Have you ever um, thought
thought about that, it's, uh, this is a long verse. It's the Message Bible. It's actually Romans 12, 1 and 2. But it really talks about using your everyday, ordinary life, everything that you have, laying it all before the Lord. Place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Be God-centered. And you'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognizing what he wants to do from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you develops well-informed maturity in you, or God teaches you what is his good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. He'll do that when we put him in the center. When we don't have him in the center, if you're like me, you flounder around wondering what's going on, or you get frustrated in your life. And uh, <clears throat> God, wants to do, God wants to speak to you right where you are, right in your life, right now. So, you know, you may be familiar with uh, a story of George Mueller. George Mueller, Mueller lived, uh, almost lived a century. He lived till he was 90, uh, uh, 93 years old. He lived from 1805 to 1898. And so he lived this long life, and God used him in a tremendous way. He was in England at a time when there was a really low spirituality. Nobody was following after God. There was a revival in the 1850s, but up until that time, hardly anybody was following after God, and there was a lot of difficulties. There were so many fatherless children and orphans in England. Nobody could take care of them. They didn't have any type of orphanage system or anything like that. And then what happened is uh, George Mueller said, I could, I could build an orphanage. We could do this if we got together, if Christians got together. And so Mueller began an orphanage in, in England, and it expanded. And he helped so many people. They said that uh, Mueller, they said, how did you end up having that faith to see that God would provide every step of the way? And the, over $8 million came into George Mueller's ministry, just as people gave. And then he gave that all out to the orphans and to uh, people in, uh, that were ministered to him. By the time of his death, he had only $800 in his bank account. An amazing conduit of God's love and provision. And God used him in an amazing way. But, you know, Mueller's favorite verse was Psalm 81, verse 10. It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. And George Mueller had this idea that if he would have open arms before God and ask God to work in his way for his cause, God would supply what he needed. And God was faithful to do it. Some people said, George, you must have the gift of faith. And he goes, no, I have the gift of grace. God always shows up. It's not my faith. It's God's goodness in me trusting him and walking with him. So George Mueller had some advice for seeking after God's will. And you might want to take notes on this. Some of it is very simple, but seek God until you're ready to listen to him, leaving your bias behind you. Meaning, just 
say, God, I want your will, not my will be done. Your will be done. Second thing, do not leave the rest of this just to uh, an impression you get. Seek God further after he impresses you with a decision. So God will give you an impression, okay, this is the way to go. But Mueller said, what I did with that impression is I said, I've laid it before the Lord again. I pray to God uh, again. Seek the will of God through his word and in connection with the spirit of God. And so Mueller would study the word of God. He devoured the word of God. He loved the word of God. And God spoke to him through the word to confirm his will for his life and what he wanted him to do. And take into account providential circumstances around you. So there would be times when God would just show up and it would be like they didn't have, they'd have the orphans all sitting down. I mean, you know, you got a hundred orphans and they're sitting at the table and they all have cereal, but they don't have milk. And this is a true story. What happens is a milk truck breaks down in front of the orphanage and there's no refrigeration there. They said, we have, to give, we have to give the milk away. Could you use it? He said, yes, I can use it. And right then and there, at that time, in providential circumstances, God provided. Do you know when we're talking about the silver lining, they're going to finish the uh, school that they started. It's going to be completed by March. And then they're going to be able to, they're also looking for another uh, property that they want to rent that would house 200 orphans. When you meet Chris and Lydia, that's the type of people that they are. They just say, God, this is the need. We believe you're opening up a door. We want to follow you. And then God provides for them. And it's amazing to see that. So through prayer, through the study of the word of God, through reflection, when God speaks to you through the Holy Spirit, you'll come to a deliberate decision and after more prayer, you'll have a peace. And that's when you proceed accordingly. There's some good principles in here that George Mueller had for us too. So when we look at Moses' life, so what did Moses do? Moses had this great assurance upon with God. God clearly spoke to him. And I want to tell you a secret here. The more God makes his will known to you, the clearer it is, the like you really know what God wants you to do, the greater the revelation, usually the greater the struggle. So if you know, like sometimes we'll say, man, I thought for sure God said that. Why is this happening now? I mean, come on, God, what's going on? And then it's, it's like, hang in there. Continue to depend on God. I can't tell you how he's going to deliver it. I can't tell you how he's going to guide you, but he is going to guide you. Because you go back to what God had said to you, and you look to him, and you trust him, just like Moses did. Moses, uh, you know, he continued to persevere even though things were difficult. By faith, he kept the Passover the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Remember the story? The angel of death was going through Egypt. And anybody who did not have the blood on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house, the firstborn son, the firstborn animal would die, even in their household. And so what they did is, by faith, they applied the blood. I don't think they understood completely all that meant, but it was a foreshadowing that 
The blood of Jesus is what forgives us of our sin. The blood of Jesus is what gives us a standing before God and protects us from the enemy. And so that's what they did. They, they did what God had told them to do, even though sometimes it didn't make complete sense. It was a risk. I mean, they had to kill a perfectly beautiful lamb. Probably they didn't have a lot. They were slaves, but that's what they had to do. They had to make a sacrifice in order for them to be protected. And sometimes God asks us to take a faith-filled risk to trust him, and then he shows his provision for us. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. I mean, that's a miracle. Come on. Walking through the sea. And God does the same thing for us. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So I, want, I encourage you, stay the course. Stay dependent on God. After he speaks to you, stay the course. The neat thing about Moses, when you think about his life, Exodus 33, 11 says this, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. You see, no longer was Moses hiding his cards. No longer was he making excuses. He was talking with God face to face as you would speak to a friend. And Moses was assured of God's love, and that gave him the impetus to then follow after God's will for his life without fear. Well, how do, we, how do you apply this to our lives? That's a lot of information I gave you. How do you really apply it to your life? Well, I think there's some action steps that we can do. First, become God-centered. Start by praying. Start simply by being honest with God. Lay things out before him. Make the connection. What I mean by that, where is God working and moving in your life? What is he impressing you about? Are there people that he lays on your heart? You're in prayer and then you start to think about this person. Maybe he wants you to call them. Maybe he wants you to, to make a connection with them. Maybe it's you're praying for your kids and you're a parent and you're really concerned about your child, and I want to tell you, God gives you a word and says, I'm going to take care of that person. I hope you hold on to that. Hold on to that. Don't try to be the Holy Spirit. Don't try to be the helicopter parent that is always saying, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Trust God. Trust God. And begin to pray specifically. And if you're married and you, and you have children, pray with your spouse specifically for each of your kids. And if you're concerned about your parent, you're a child and you're concerned about your parents, you're concerned about their marriage, or you're concerned about other things in their lives or their health, you pray and you seek God. And you begin to see him work in your family and friends. And then one of the things that I have here is ask questions. It's okay to ask questions to people. Hey, how could I pray for you? Maybe there's an activity of God. You know, we recognize the activity of God when somebody asks us spiritual questions. If somebody asks you, what did you do this weekend? Why don't you tell them, I went to church. Man, it was such good worship, and the message was so powerful. And they'll say, really? You go to church on Sunday? What time did you serve? 11.45? 
That's like in the middle of the day. Like, and you like it? Why do you like it? And you tell them the hope that you have in Christ. You see, if, God, if, they're, if they're carrying on that conversation, God's at work in their lives. They're probably searching. They're probably wondering about how God could work in their lives. Listen attentively, attentively, and if they are seeking or interested in the Lord, this is how we join God in his work. Why? Because God's pursuing a love relationship with every person in this world. He really is. He pursues them. Just like we sang about that song, he'll knock down doors, he'll climb up every mountain. He's pursuing them, but he wants to use you and I as well. And be prepared to respond and continue to depend upon God as you seek him. That's how you can join God in his work. So why don't we pray right here. Let's ask the Lord to teach us more. You know, we're going to be learning more about this in the next couple weeks. You know, how does God speak? Uh, how do we hear from God? Uh, I think these are, this is kind of like a foundational uh, teaching about that. But open up your heart to want to hear from God, because if you hear from him, he is going to change you from the inside out, and he's going to use you in what he's doing in this world. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the way that you work in our lives, Lord, that you are pursuing us. And so, Lord, today we again want to come to that place where we just surrender to you, where we open up our hearts to you and we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I'm concerned about this in my life, but I really want to understand what you want me to do. Lord, I need your help. Honestly, Lord, I'm scared. Or whatever is going on in your heart, say that to the Lord. And then be open to him and come to him. Because God can begin to do something new in your life that only he can do. Father, we just pray that you would have that, that, that you do that work in our lives. Do that work in our lives, Lord God. May your Holy Spirit continue to lead us into a deeper relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name.